Thank you very much for joining us for the second episode of our podcast series, Looking at Jurisdiction. And I'm joined by Gillian Crotty from our Belfast office and Andrew Foyle from our Edinburgh office. And I'm Paula Swain, representing England and Wales um, and our Soden office here at Shoesmiths. And we're going to be talking about how we deliver litigation services across those three jurisdictions in the UK for our corporate client base. Uh, my main focus is business to business and debt recovery with my team based in Solent and our Thames Valley um, offices. I have a team of 25 paralegals, managers and solicitors looking after our corporate client base. There's a fairly large team, I think, Andrew, in Edinburgh now, isn't there? I think you might have more individuals than me at the moment. I had cause to count them just the other day and there are 22 of them. <laughs> oh, I, I just trumped you there. <laughs> yeah, just, just. I don't know if that includes me or not, having said that. But, that's, uh, but yes, we have a very large team. We have decades of experience in the team. Mm. And on the kind of commercial side of it, we've got what we call the undefended team. So if the cases come into them, they deal with it up until the point when a court action would become defended. Um, and we've got Gail running that team who's been with the firm for somewhere approaching 30 years. I'm sure she wouldn't actually want me to tell you exactly how long, but huge amount of experience, good bunch of folk. Very diverse, aren't they? There's a, there's a lot of backgrounds in there. And we'll come on to, to Gillian in terms of, although it's a smaller team in, in Belfast, naturally. Yes, um, smaller team, but growing. So we now have 15 people in my team um, in Belfast. So again, ranging from senior solicitors, solicitors, and paralegals and support staff. And and again, a real mix of team um, in terms of what we work with. So work closely, Paula, with you and with Andrew and various types of work, whether it's those commercial recoveries, litigation cases, um, financial services litigation, professional negligence cases. So within the team, we have different groups of people who specialise in, in various different areas. So each individual or group has their key focus in terms of what they work on and whether that's the paralegals or the solicitors. And what sort of roles are there within our teams in terms of career opportunities for somebody who's interested in a career in the law? I suppose the entry level, as it were, would be the, the junior paralegal. So somebody coming in with little or no experience who uh, is training up in, into a career as a paralegal within the firm. So we have a, a few of those in the team. You then progress into being a paralegal. And then we've now got uh, senior paralegals over and above that. They're divided into teams. As, as Julian says, there's different specialisms from financial services to commercial to insolvency um, and everything in between. And so different teams have got uh, different uh, different roles. Each team has a manager. We, we have a full spectrum of roles within the team, uh, all the way up to, to myself as the partner. And do the team members, is it by osmosis and learning from colleagues that they sort of progress or... Are some members of the team doing outside training, for example, mm. open university or I think, I think it very courses? It very much depends on, on the individual. I think that's something that's so good about all of our teams and Shoesmiths as a whole is that there isn't just one route into the law. And I think, again, a lot of people maybe think that the only way to work in a solicitor's firm or to deal with cases or to go into litigation is to go to university, study your law degree, get a training contract and then and then once you're a trainee solicitor or solicitor start to work on cases whereas as Andrew and I've said and as you have said about your team Paula we all have paralegals many of them who haven't gone down the traditional law degree route I mean the two senior paralegals in my team one of them has an English literature degree and the other one is an engineer in terms of his background and, and I think that brings a really good diverse different skill set in so um the engineer in my team actually in terms of things like reporting and and 
looking for better processes in terms of how we deal with our work and our systems, he is far stronger at that than I'd say many of our um, people who come in for the traditional legal route to just look at something else in terms of maybe focusing on a particular legal point as opposed to looking at some of the background processes. I think it works really well for us to have that really diverse group of people in terms of some going down, yes, the traditional legal route, but others coming in through different backgrounds and routes. Because of the amount of litigation that we're dealing with, and we deal with volume cases for some of our corporate clients where we can receive, you know, hundreds or thousands of cases on an initial instruction um, to pursue for recovery. And also we can deal with the larger bespoke litigation. We talk a lot, don't we, the three of us, about commerciality um, in our teams. And how do we bring that to life? Well, it's all part of the training and it's part of the DNA of the team, actually, to, to look at a case as it comes in and go, is this worth the gamble? I just, like that phrase. Just, just, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, you can have that. Um, just you know, just this morning, I had to send an email to a client saying, OK, well, you clearly have a very strong case here and there's no doubt in my mind that actually if we were to go to court, we'd we'd get it but actually what are you going to get out of it at the end of it and do you really want to pursue it you know and on one level that's talking us out of work but uh, I'd rather do that than mm. than actually pursue a case when there's no prospect of recovery at the end of it. I think for me that's where it's so useful actually in terms of our relationships that we have with our clients multi-jurisdictions of UK wide and that we know our local markets and a lot of the time actually and and the three of us and our teams obviously speak to our clients together quite frequently it may well be us having a discussion about what may work for that client commercially in England may not work in Scotland or Northern Ireland due to particular nuances or or issues in a particular area. And I think that's where it works really well for our clients. They know they can pick up the phone and speak to us. So sometimes not only on a case-by-case basis, but actually on portfolios of cases or particular issues that they have, whether they want to go down the standard court route to obtain a judgment or if it's better to go down the insolvency route. I think that's something where we always work together to speak to the clients and provide them with that bespoke service to say, this is not just how it works well for you in this particular area. This is how we can provide you with the best service to hopefully get you the best returns in all jurisdictions. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, actually. And you know, there are things that can only be done in our in our jurisdiction. For example, we can get interim orders right at the start of an action to freeze bank accounts and uh, stop so people selling properties. <laughs> I'm exactly. so envious of that. That is yeah. a fantastic option, and that's one of the questions I was going to have to you both actually in the course of these, this podcast series. Is I do see Northern Ireland and Scotland having some mm. really good weapons available to you that we just don't have in England or Wales, unfortunately. The interim order is is a, a very good example of that. Yeah, you've got to use it sparingly because it's not you know available as a right. But um, in the right case, when you're worried that assets are going to go walk about before you've managed to get your judgment at the end of it, uh, it's it's well worth doing and uh, very effective. And I think it's a, it's a quick, I mean, the key point is it's a quicker process, isn't it? Yes. Whereas our process, we have to essentially, it's almost an injunction, and we have to apply to the court. It's quite a long-winded and risky process and costly, mm. and you, you're not guaranteed to succeed, whereas I think it's more commonly used in Scotland. It, it's fairly commonly used, and there's two ways to get it. You can get it with a hearing or without a hearing. Obviously, you normally go for without a hearing um, because then it, it's, the person doesn't have any notice they don't have there's the element of surprise so they can't get rid of assets as and when they you know they hear about it so yeah we use it quite often but as i say you do have to be careful about it and make sure we're taking the right cases forward because you don't want to get a reputation for using it so is that a consideration then for some of our clients when they're looking at jurisdiction because we talk about lawyers we're very used to looking at jurisdiction clauses in contracts sometimes when we talk to our corporate clients even though they're familiar with their own terms conditions it's not something they've ever really considered and then they pull the terms conditions out of the drawer for the contract they want to enforce and find out that it 
their customer is based in Scotland or in Northern Ireland. But in the contract, it says that the courts of England and Wales will have exclusive jurisdiction in relation to the um, contract. So bear in mind that there might be a need to secure assets in, in Scotland. How would you deal with that situation? Well, there's two ways to deal with it. Um, the first is raise your action in England and um, deal with it as best you can in, in, within the English jurisdiction. Um, the other is you raise it in Scotland um, and the rule is that if jurisdiction isn't picked up immediately in your defences, then you're taken to have acceded to the jurisdiction of the courts. So in other words, you, you've accepted that that court has jurisdiction if you don't raise it straight away. So we have done that in the past. As you say, if there's assets that we want to attach in Scotland that we need to try and get in quickly, then uh, then we have done that. And obviously, if jurisdiction is raised as an issue, we deal with it at the time. Uh, if it's not, then we, we carry on. Yeah. And it's, it's very similar in, in Northern Ireland. So if there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause, as Andrew said, the choice for the client is they can then make that decision to issue proceedings in England and Wales. Or again, if proceedings are issued in Northern Ireland with the exclusive jurisdiction clause, if that defendant does not raise it at the outset and essentially enters um, what's known as a limited appearance in the high court, if it's a high court action to say they're challenging jurisdiction, then you simply carry on. I mean, in, in practice, I have seen very few jurisdiction clauses actually challenged because many of the debtors or defendants in Northern Ireland know that in fact it's more cost effective for them to defend the proceedings in Northern Ireland. Um, logistically, if they're based in Northern Ireland, then have to instruct potentially a separate firm of Engl um, solicitors in England and Wales, potentially depending on the nature of any hearing, have to travel over to attend trials or reviews, anything like that. Um, even if the court process itself wasn't more expensive, Logistically, it's more difficult. So quite often we find that those jurisdiction clauses aren't actually challenged. And therefore, from that, again, balancing the risk point um, that we as lawyers like to talk about, quite often clients do then decide that although they know there is an exclusive jurisdiction clause, that they will issue proceedings in, in Northern Ireland or, or Scotland anyway. It can get quite complicated, can't it, with the jurisdiction clauses? Because we all talk about jurisdiction a lot. Um, but if sometimes wrapped up in the jurisdiction clause is an, an applicable law clause. So yeah. while you might have jurisdiction in Belfast or in Edinburgh, and when you're raising that action, despite the exclusive jurisdiction clause in the contract, it also says that the laws of England and Wales will apply. How's that dealt with in your jurisdictions, Andrew? English or any foreign law, of which English is a foreign law, it's I'm a afraid. a foreign law. Um, <laughs> you can say that's okay. I can say that's right. So any foreign law can be pled in Scotland, but it's a matter of fact, so you have to prove it if it is different from Scots law. So generally speaking, that means you need a barrister in England to do an opinion on what the law of England is, and you enter that into the, into the process. If you don't do that, then the assumption is that the law of Scotland is the same as the law of England or whichever jurisdiction it is. And so it's only really if the other side raise it that there's a distinct issue in the, the law of England that means that um, we, we have to actually prove what the law is, that, uh, that we have to worry about it. But generally, we just act as though it is the same as Scots law and we, we go on that basis. Northern Ireland? And again, in Northern Ireland, because the law is substantially similar to England and Wales, and if we're talking about, for example, a breach of contract claim, it is essentially going to mirror the laws of England and Wales. Um, so the courts in Northern Ireland, particularly if it's not being challenged, um, don't tend to have any kind of issue in terms of being able to deal with claims being brought in Northern Ireland, even where there is a clause saying the um, laws of England and Wales apply. And in fact, quite often where you do see challenges in respect of jurisdiction, the views that the courts in Northern Ireland have taken is that because the law is so substantially the same, that they have the ability to be able to deal with 
any challenges or, or um, claims in relation to, for example, an England and Wales contract, because really there is no difference in respect to the law itself. Thank you very much. We spoke earlier about how we look after our clients, our, our corporate clients, on the sort of volume side of life, where they're sending us multiple cases coming through, and where we work together closely, the three of us, in relation to looking after those big accounts, and you know, monthly meetings sometimes, um, depending on the client, reporting and um, how we bill as well, so that's as consistent as as possible across the piece, and. Um, any thoughts in relation to how that is from your side of things? And is that fairly unique, do you think, in terms of what we're offering into the market, Andrew? I get the impression we're probably one of the most joined up firms in this in this sense. You know, I think we all use the same case management system. We've all got access to each other's systems so we can, can check in on things as, as required. All the MI gets pulled from that system, so it all gets um, aggregated together and sent out as one as one report, depending on which client it is, of course. Certainly the impression I get is that, and, and the feedback we get, quite frankly, from clients is that we are the most joined up of firms in this, in this space. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think although there are other firms who operate within all three jurisdictions, I think, as Andrew said, we really do demonstrate a joint up approach together. I mean, the three of us are together today um, doing this podcast, but we all get together frequently to talk about our clients, our cases. We don't operate as vacuums or silos in our in our own areas. Um, we share knowledge in terms of know-how or things maybe that have worked well for us in something, whether it's a particular client or case or type of case. And I think that's something that our clients see and they recognise and, and they quite frequently will speak to one of us in England or Scotland or Northern Ireland about any point that they want to discuss and they know it can be dealt with and it'll be dealt with in the exact same way really in any jurisdiction. So I think in terms of client feedback and how we operate together, certainly it it's pretty unique. Yeah, I think what's important is it's not just the three of us, it's actually our teams mm. know each other as well and, and trust each other and, and work together closely on, on a lot of clients. So I think that's unusual. It's maybe not so unusual to have partners working together to, to do it, but actually having that trickle down is, is mm. not the norm. I agree. There is one big difference between the two of you and me in so far as focus every day. My everyday focus is on commercial recoveries and that debt recovery piece for our clients and managing managing my team. Whereas your your days are spread a bit more across various legal areas, aren't they? You don't just cover commercial recoveries and debt recovery. Andrew, it's fairly mixed, isn't it? It is. It covers pretty much anything that comes through the door in the commercial litigation space. Um, whether I mean my particular specialism is financial services and professional negligence and, and things like that um, and insolvency I write the insolvency briefing for the Law Society of Scotland uh, journal so we certainly do have a, a wider practice than, than you do I think that's the nature of the, the practice in our jurisdictions I think it's smaller jurisdictions you end up being slightly less specialist absolutely and I think our teams um, focus, as Andrew said, on, on a wide range of commercial litigation. So whether it is working on those business-to-business -business, um, litigation cases for you, Paula, or again, I think there are probably a few key sectors that, that we're really focusing and working within. So as Andrew mentioned, financial services for me is, is a big one. We act on behalf of a lot of the UK's largest banks or um, financial services organisations in relation to a wide range of, of litigation and, and professional negligence is, is a big one. Um, I think along with that in Northern Ireland as well, one of our key focuses at the moment is in relation to litigation in the energy sphere. It's probably one of the areas where Northern Ireland actually is leading the way um, over and above the rest of the UK in respect of a lot of 
really exciting energy projects and, and as a firm that's something that we're focusing on so as a team um, quite a few of my team members at the moment have some really interesting litigation cases in relation to energy and I, and I see that actually increasing over the next number of years as as more new projects and and um, the alternative energy market grows. Do you think that experience could actually come across into England and Wales so it won't be limited to to Northern Ireland because it must be a UK-wide project so there must be some experience that will yeah. be able to be leveraged there. Absolutely and, and it's something it's another really great I think demonstration of how Shoesmiths as a whole works really well together so within Northern Ireland um, my teams and, and the lawyers who work in those kinds of cases work across teams in the Northern Ireland office so with some of our colleagues there but also across multiple offices so it could be I know that there's some other lawyers in Andrew's office for example who work in these deals and cases um, the Leeds office um, London so it's a great way for as Andrew said, not just us as partners, but actually a lot of the solicitors and lawyers within our teams to work cross-office and, and cross-team as well in some of these cases. Thank you very much. Just wrapping up our conversation in relation to the difference in the jurisdictions. I spoke earlier about sort of the weapons available to you in terms of the differences with England and Wales. We're quite buttoned down, I think, is probably a way to describe that in terms of the civil procedure rules and the, the handbook that we use for cases to go through the courts. Um, and, it, and it's quite established now since 1998 when they first came through so and they've grown and grown and grown over those years I would say there's a number of things that we can use in terms of interim applications to deal with um, cases you know trying to preserve assets but it's not as straightforward I don't think as as the system you were describing earlier Andrew is there anything else you can think of which is an advantage you have in Scotland which we don't have we don't have here it's a feel to say but I, I don't think get political, I think, though. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> Never, never, not me. <laughs> I think possibly in the in the insolvency space, I think you do have it in England. It's just very rarely used. We tend to appoint a lot of provisional liquidators to companies. So get a liquidator appointed on day one to take control of the assets rather than having to wait until the petition's served and, and everything else and advertised. Certainly when you have a company that you're a bit concerned about, um, that can be a real help because you have front, on day one an insolvency practice, practitioner going in putting everything on hold, ring fencing everything, checking, you know, getting hold of the books and records and so on, whilst in the background you're still working on the petition and getting it through. So we tend to use that quite a lot, as well as these interim orders uh, in just your, your normal debt recovery type claim. The enforcement side of it, actually, post-judgment, is very slick for us because uh, I know in England you have to go back to court quite often to get orders for things, orders for sale, that kind of thing. Uh, once we have our judgment, that is a warrant for us to do whatever enforcement we think is necessary mm. uh, with very limited exceptions. So we can just go ahead and do things uh, without having to go back to the court for permission. One of your um, the options you have, which I quite like, we, we spoke about a few years ago, um, was when you can actually register something in the court, I can't remember what it's called now, and that inform you if you're being sued. Uh, yes, we have a caveat. That's it. Called. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's right. So... As, as I've mentioned, there are certain things that are granted before you get any notice yeah, of them. Yeah. But you can register a caveat so that you do get notice of them. Which can uh, be quite useful. Yeah, it certainly can. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then you get the chance then to turn up and argue it. But, uh, yes. But usually the next day, so you don't get a huge amount of notice even then. But still. But more than you would otherwise. Being a surprise. Mm -hmm. And Gillian, anything in Northern Ireland you can think of? Well, I think, I mean, as you've mentioned, Paul, so in England and Wales, you have your civil procedure rules and, and the court process in Northern Ireland essentially reflects England and Wales 
prior to those civil procedure rules coming into force. So it's looking back around 25 years ago for you, um, which means that, yes, in a way, it makes it slightly less prescriptive, um, which has its pros and cons. It means we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of certain things that we do. Um, I think as well, one of the big benefits for us about being a smaller legal jurisdiction, um, we have one high court in Northern Ireland, for example, and it means that we appear frequently before the same judges or certain um, types of cases are heard before masters, which is a class of judge. So it means that we really get to know how those particular judges like cases to be dealt with. If there are particular maybe ways of doing something in terms of a court pleading or document that they want to be changed, it means that we can really pass that message down within our team and back to the clients very quickly to say that one particular comment has been made by a judge about something they would prefer to be done differently and we can then adapt straight away. Um, whereas I know in England and Wales, you could be in front of 40 or 50, 60 different judges in respect of one type of case. I think I think that's something, while it's not a, a sort of formal um, procedural point, really works out well for us on the knowledge point. And I think, again, one slight benefit for us on the enforcement side is all um, debts and judgments, essentially, once you're post-judgment stage in Northern Ireland, are enforced by the Enforcement Judgments Office, which is essentially another part of the court service in Northern Ireland. And it is actually, although you can still have waiting lists, obviously, and, and post-COVID holds, there are plenty of um, waiting lists, but certain powers that the EJO have are very efficient in terms of, again, as Andrew mentioned, about types of orders to enforce judgments. If we are enforcing judgments in Northern Ireland, we can simply tick down a list of, of every type of order that we're seeking. So, for example, attachment to earnings or an order charging land. And the EJO will then go away and provide you with any orders that it's possible to get. And that's quite an efficient system as opposed to going back and applying individually for different court orders, depending on your own research. So I think that's something that does work out well for us. Um, and certainly at the moment, in terms of speaking to clients, I think our waiting lists for getting court hearings and trial dates are much shorter than England and Wales. So we're seeing cases reaching trial um, a lot faster. I think as an incentive, perhaps, to pursue a case, that's something that is, is working well at the moment for us in Northern Ireland. Mm, we do have a challenge here in England and Wales at the moment mm. in relation to court availability unfortunately, not least as a result of the pandemic yeah. um, and the backlog of cases. That's really interesting. Thank you very much. Um, we'll end our episode there and look forward to speaking with you on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.